Hi, I'm Tiffany, and I'm type number four. Um, I feel like I'm a poster child of type number four because I'm a watercolor artist and a singer-songwriter. Um, what it means I to am me an Enneagram type four. I am a number four, and... I am a four. And when I first learned four with a... I have discovered that I'm a four, and that I have work to do. Howdy, um, howdy. My name is Melissa, and I'm from Dallas, Texas. I am a seven. My um, name is Pete, and I'm a nine on the Enneagram, a peacemaker. My Enneagram number is one. The I'm a five, it's uh, sometimes with a seven in the wing, so and I'm sometimes an Enneagram with a nine. Seven. I'm an what Enneagram I have realized is that... Okay, so uh, my name is Dylan, and uh, I'm, I'm an Enneagram number two. I'm Understanding that I am a number two. I am a two. Welcome to the Liturgist Podcast, everyone. Today we're talking about the Enneagram to kick off Season 3 of the program, and it's one of the most requested topics in the history of this podcast. For those of you who haven't heard of it, the Enneagram is a personality typing system. Its name literally means nine-pointed figure, which is a symbol associated with the Enneagram and its nine personality types. Now, most people who teach about the Enneagram claim that its roots go back thousands of years to teachings in the early church, Muslim Sufis, and Buddhists, but there's not a lot of documentation out there to support those claims. Instead, the Enneagram's history really doesn't become clear until the 1950s and 60s, when a man named Oscar Ischo started codifying human behavior using an Enneagon of ego fixations, which itself was based on the inclusion of a nine-sided figure in the teachings of G.I. Gurdjieff in the 1920s. The Enneagram became more widely known in the 1980s and 90s when authors and teachers like Richard Rohr, Don Rizzo, and Helen Palmer started writing about it. In the last few years, interest in the Enneagram has started to grow again, and hence this podcast. But it's really important to point out that the Enneagram is not scientifically driven, and it's not based on any clinical psychology. There's no research citing its accuracy or effectiveness. So why do so many people love the Enneagram? Why do people like to talk about their number so much? I came across the Enneagram the first time, I think four or five years ago. And when I came across it, I was personally in kind of a dark place in my own life. As a five on the Enneagram, which you'll hear more about later in the program, I can often live in my own head, and I always felt kind of alien to the world. Like there was something fundamentally wrong with me, that I was broken, and not just broken in a general sense, but uniquely broken and alien to the world. And the Enneagram helped me see some of the things that I thought were broken about myself in a context that gave me hope. Hope that I wasn't alone in my eccentricities and hope that there was a way of integrating the way my ego was into something more whole and healthy and transcending the natural inclinations of my ego. And a lot of people that I've come across, this is how the Enneagram has helped them as well, that they've felt understood and seen and that there's a path that's possible 
to move into a fuller human existence. The Enneagram's complexity makes it very dynamic. It helps people understand how to have self-awareness about how their behavior and outlook may change in different times and situations, whether they're in times of stress or times of health. To help us explore the Enneagram, its usefulness and limitations, we sat down with two experts, Susan Stabile and Ian Cron. How's it going, guys? Going great. great. Well, we don't know anything about the Enneagram, so if we did a show, <laughs> be like, well, here's some stuff I read on the internet. Well, that's a good start, kind of. So for something that's apparently so ancient, it certainly seems that a lot of people are talking about and learning about the Enneagram now. In the 25 years that I've been working with it and teaching it, I've seen increased interest exponentially in the last four. Why do you think that is? I think we feel a little more free to explore things that are not necessarily part of our tradition without being threatened by those things or without feeling like they are going to negate the tradition that we come from in some way. And I also think people have more time. Modern conveniences cost us a lot of time, but they save us some space too, I think, And it gives us a little time for reflection about who we are and why we're here and what we're supposed to do. I'm older than you guys, so I'm 65. And the big question in the 60s was, why am I here and what am I supposed to do? And I think there is a a missing element there in us not knowing ourselves before we try to figure out why we're here and what we're supposed to do. And the Enneagram fills in that piece. I first did this about seven or eight years ago, and it was just something for fun. I did this with a friend of mine who was my pastor at the time, and my wife took the test, and he and his wife took it, and it was it was fun. It made for good conversation, but about three years after that, I experienced a really deep, dark period of, of depression, and understanding some things that I learned about myself through the Enneagram became an integral part of helping create like more healthy relationships uh, with people around me. The Enneagram has kind of helped me uh, become a more complete person. And I think more of the person that God created me to be at my best. I think everybody's looking for a shortcut. I think people don't have much time and they kind of look at other people and think, I would never do that. Or I, I would never say that. And the Enneagram, once you understand the nine ways of seeing things, it's a shortcut to all that confusion about why other people aren't like you. If I had to guess, then there's like a huge part of the liturgist audience that knows a bit about the Enneagram, has a suspicion about what type they are and is really engaged in the conversation but i bet there's like at least a decent slice who literally has no idea what we're talking about has been confused every time we've dropped enneagram uh, references in an episode and so what we're talking about is a personality typing system that has uh, rather ancient origins and is divided into 
nine primary types of what personalities, archetypes. I don't know what language you would use as people who actually know about the Enneagram. And it's also got different practitioners and schools of thought among people who discuss and use the Enneagram for introspective purposes. Correct? That is true. So I'm curious still about, uh, I mean, I know you're saying it has ancient roots. How developed were those ancient roots? And if it wasn't written down, how do we know about those ancient roots? The first thing to know about the Enneagram is that it, it really was an oral tradition up until the 1970s. And so this was transmitted orally from teachers to students. And uh, actually, until the 1970s, you know, uh, people were encouraged not to write it down for fear that, you know, people would get their hands on it and it would end up becoming sort of a parlor trick, you know, or a game where people sat around and, you know, oh, I'm a six or I'm a five, which apparently, you know, as we all know, is sadly kind of happened at this point, you know, after people started publishing it. You know, as an oral tradition, things kind of get bolted on over time. And because you don't have anything written down, you're not able to trace the history of development. Since the 70s, I think you can. And there is a, since that time, been an infusion of quite a bit of modern psychology into the work of the Enneagram. So it's not just this kind of airy, fairy, sort of esoteric sort of material. It's very practical. And in fact, I've read dozens of PhD papers from major universities of, you know, people beginning to do, you know, statistical work to see if, you know, the degree to which it's accurate and useful from, you know, a clinical standpoint. And a lot of it's really, really promising. So I go back to this idea is the question isn't so much about scientific accuracy and, you know, all these sort of quantitative analysis and sample sizes. The question is, uh, is it useful? Does it ring true? And is it useful? And and we found it to be incredibly useful for people's personal development. If you look at some of the uh, psychological studies done on Myers-Briggs, which is broadly used in corporate environments, uh, that is not really respected as a truly scientific typing system or methodology. And it scores really low, actually, on most measures of reproducibility that a lot of people don't score consistently. That's true, yeah. Um, and so for use as some kind of like psychologically diagnostic tool, Myers-Briggs is not very helpful or useful as a means by which it's a scaffold for someone to do personal growth or development work, though. I think Myers-Briggs is still useful. It's a useful shorthand for making statements about yourself against a shared framework or understanding. And to me... Uh, after studying kind of the Rizzo-Hudson view of the Enneagram, it's like that only maybe with a little more depth and a little more flexibility, allowing people to more precisely define how they understand themselves in a shared framework or common understanding, if that makes any sense. I think that um, for me, one of my favorite things about the Enneagram versus some of the other personality typing things that I've done is how it shows you kind of how you tend to move in stress versus in integration. And that was a really key thing for me when I see certain things creeping up in my behaviors and attitudes and perspectives during 
you know, let's say an unhealthy time or stressful time, it's been helpful for me to be able to see that and understand, oh, that's, that's my ego doing what it does. And that's the tendency of my ego is to move in this direction. Seeing it that way kind of takes some power away from it. If there's any danger to, of this sort of thing to me, I think it's, it's a construct. It's, a, it's an idea. Any construct or idea, I think you have to hold loosely uh, somewhat. You have to have a little bit open hands. Otherwise, you can reduce reality. Um, any construct, any model never fits the fullness of reality. It's what it is. It's a construct or a model. So this is a construct. It's a model. It's, it can be a helpful one. But the potential reduction of the self to just a personality, first of all, I think is a potentially yeah. reductionistic way of seeing a human being. Um, people can change based on their environments and their circumstances. And and I think within the Enneagram, what's beautiful about it is it seems like the individual has the ability to transcend um, just that yes. one number. This is the one way of seeing things. But I think that's a, you know, when, when, when you start turning people into numbers or things in your own mind, including yourself, there's a reduction of the fullness of what a human being is or what reality is on some level. So that would be the one caution, I think, and one caveat that I would offer um, in engaging with it. Hold it with loose, open hands. But when you engage with it, it can actually be quite healthy and helpful. Yeah. I mean, Susan, I couldn't agree more. I think. Uh, you know, these are models, and being models, they're, they're wrong, but they're useful, right? You know, the, the Enneagram is an imprecise map of, you know, how the, the human personality works. If, if I were to give you one of those old-fashioned paper Hagstrom maps, if you got lost somewhere, uh, you'd pull it out of the old, you know, glove compartment. This is a million years ago before we had GPS. Well, I mean, those maps are imprecise. They don't show you the roads precisely. They give you an idea of where roads are and where they go. But the good news is, as imprecise as they are, they'll get you back on the right road. So I, I'm with you. I think, you know, you hold it lightly. You never want to use it as a way to pigeonhole people by saying, oh, you're being such a six or you're being such a three. It's like, no, that's not true, you know. Every human soul is, is an individual expression um, of the image of God, and we can't reduce people down to numbers I mean, uh, by way of shorthand. That's just relational laziness. I don't think, Ian, we could count the number of uh, families who have talked to us about how much it helped their marriage or how much it helped their relationships with their children, or how much it saved them in money that they would have spent on therapy. That doesn't happen to us occasionally. That happens to us every time we teach. All right, let's do this. Let's go through the nine types. Obviously, on a program of this length, we can't get super detailed into everything, but I think we could get a, a good start, and let's see what we can get done. Let's start with number one. My Enneagram number is one, the reformer. It's been a really great thing to have during uh, deconstruction and coming into a new thing because there's so much, especially these days, to reform. There's so much to reform, so much to reform, so much to reform. 
so much before, so much before, so much before, so much before. Ones on the Enneagram are uh, called the perfectionist or the reformer, and they literally see everything in terms of how it could be improved, how it could be better. That includes themselves, it includes other people, it includes uh, rooms that they're in and processes that they work with. And when that's your way of seeing, you tend to try to redo or perfect or come behind people and make things better. Now, for numbers who don't see that way, that feels critical. It feels like you're not good enough somehow that somebody has to thinks they can do better than you. Ones are burdened with a, an inner critic that works pretty hard on them to tell them constantly how they could do things better. And without them, the precision that we have in many things in the world, we would not have. Once you know that and they come behind you and reload the dishwasher, it's just much less offensive than before you knew that they actually know the perfect way to load the dishwasher. Well, any um, examples of ones who, who might, who's some famous oh ones? Oh boy. Yeah. Richard Rohr. Uh, I, uh, Steve Jobs, I think was uh, a one, but I put a little bit of a caveat on it. I think he had some unhealthy dimensions too, but he really has that driving, that perfectionism, that, that wild passion for perfect design. Oh, and I say, you know who's the perfect one of the perfect healthy one? Uh, would be Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. So much to reform. So much to reform. So my Enneagram number is one. As both a deconstructed Christian and an Enneagram one, my conscientious and fairly principled nature drives kind of an impulse for justice for the oppressed and the vulnerable. So I really strongly identify with the stories about Jesus that talk about him speaking kindly to a Samaritan woman or healing lepers, or when Jesus talked about the, the idea that when we love the least of these, we do those things for him. So in the modern day, I believe really strongly in gender equality, racial justice, uh, equal access to health care and education, and marriage equality. Hey, this is Matt in San Diego, and personally, I am a two, which is the helper on the Enneagram. I love you. Oh, just let me serve you. It's all about you, and that makes me proud. Uh, I'm somebody who is prone to being very emotionally codependent. Uh, with others. Uh, one of the hallmarks of a helper is somebody who will do things genuinely out of care for other people, but that is easily morphed into somebody who will do things in order to be needed by other people. Twos are helpers, and their way of seeing is based on sensing and meeting the needs of other people. They don't think you would have a place in your life for them if you didn't need them, so they walk through the world um, looking for ways to offer advice and to be helpful and to give to you. And then they sadly, usually unconsciously, expect something in return. They are unaware 
that other people don't sense what others need like they do. And so they have to learn that they're going to have to ask to have their needs met because they're the only number that really walks into a room and can read who needs what and who's doing well and who's not. They know the stories that make up people's lives and they kind of hold us together uh, socially and teach us about relationship and intimate connection. You're recording. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So as I was putting together uh, some edits on this, I realized that the two section is by far shorter than everything else. And that's because we let, I'm I'm pretty sure it's because we let a two talk about two-ness, which is like... uh, (laughs) Twos don't like to talk about themselves. Yeah, twos aren't terribly interested in just focusing on themselves. That's kind of the whole deal. Uh, So here's Lisa Gunger. (laughs) Hello, hello. My lovely wife, who is a two. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Either a two or some other number that uh, that Christianity repressed her into being a two for most of her life. <laughs> so much repression. Just an oppressed, well, that's the thing. I'm an a, oppressed woman. No, it's a real thing that um, women are often subjugated into being some sort of helper role. It's true. Because, you know, Adam Adam was created first. and He, he was first, he and the, I mean, that's the way that... It, Eve ate the fruit. It's the way that it's supposed to be. We're supposed to follow and <laughs> do the laundry and the dishes and the, all the things that, you know, just be the supporter. And I, the, I, I personally think that she's a two that has been... Uh, just has a two a that had children. Of, that had children <laughs> and then has a little bit of like... Uh, uh, fire burning oh. in your <laughs> burning in your bones. Fire is no. a good good choice of words, husband. <laughs> yeah, but for most of her life, I mean, and most of the time, if if people are in the room, Lisa's very aware of them. She's very good at gifts. Well, thank you. Very good at being aware of others' needs. Someone like myself, as a five, is not so aware of such things. I thought it'd be interesting for you to tell, because of all the people that I've ever seen see their results from the Enneagram as they've kind of discovered their ego, most people have a mixed reaction. A lot of people are, like, a lot of fives are super excited about it, like because they don't feel so alone and alien. Uh, your response when you read through the twos, a description was not so uh, excited. Just talk a little yeah. bit about it. <laughs> Well, yeah, I don't know. It's when I read through it, I, um, I mean, I was reading through Richard Rohr's book on it and I had this feeling of like, oh no. (laughs) And, and from what I read in the intro of the book, it was kind of, kind of like, you know, whatever you're, as you're reading through this, whatever's ringing true, that's, that's what you are. And, but I was in a really dark place. Um, was going through the falling out of a very dear friendship and couldn't quite figure out why it was all happening and kept trying to pick up the pieces of it. And um, when I started reading it, it was, yeah, I mean, it was like reading my mail of um, 
you love and you care deeply, relationships are like the core of who you are. But the dark side of that is there's all these strings attached to it. And there's all this stuff that you expect back when you love somebody. And I hated reading that part. I hated seeing that in black and white. Um, it was really hard. And I, I threw the book away. And I think I <laughs> cried for about two weeks. <laughs> because it, it, was, it had become a thing of pride, right? Of Well, I loved I didn't think it was. I thought that it was very pure and, and healthy and good. And um, it wasn't until I was reading about it that I, I saw it for what it was and saw how it could be harmful for someone else. And I saw that in my marriage, you know, like I do, I do this for Michael and I have it with all the best intentions, like a gift or a date night or some planned thing where I've like sacrificed my time and gone out of my way for him. But then if that's not reciprocated, I get really hurt by that. And so I realized, no, I'm not, it's not just pure intentions. There's, there's this thing behind it where I'm always expecting something else. And that was really hard to give up. That was, uh, it's hard. I think for a while I thought that that's how love was. That's how relationships were. I sacrifice here, you, I do this, and then you do this in return. Um, and love just doesn't work that way. I am a three been pretty successful. I, I put a lot of weight into being externally validated by I others. You need to do a lot of things to earn that validation. I I've been pretty successful. I'm a super image conscious person. So I need to do a lot of things to earn that validation. Threes are called the achiever. Uh, their need is to succeed or to appear uh, like, a, like a success. You know, they just want to project this image of being this performer who just is a production machine. What matters to threes is, is that they avoid failure at all costs and that they, they really have to be the star performer. They got to be the star of the room, really. Uh, when a three walks into a room full of people, the first thing they do is they, they look around and they sort of instinctively begin to ask themselves, who do I need to become in order to be perceived in the eyes of everybody in this room as the star, as being the icon of success, of being the poster child of all the people in this room? And then once they know who that image is, they literally, it's like a superpower. I, th I like to think that actually every number has its own, like, you know, X-Men superpower. And the superpower of the three is they literally can morph or project the image of whoever it is they need to be in order for the group to love them. Now, it's, it's kind of this by way of maybe just um, putting numbers side by side, which is really helpful for me in learning about them. So twos, threes, and fours are all in the feeling triad. That's what that's called. They're the most image-conscious numbers on the Enneagram. And twos, when they walk in a room, they go right to individuals. They just zero on a person, and they, they go right up, and they look in your eyes. And I swear, you guys aren't old enough to remember Radar O'Reilly from MASH, you know, where this guy would just show up knowing what this, this one colonel on the show needed right away. So a two goes right up to someone, and they look in their eyes, and they go, 
okay, w- what do you need? What do you feel? You know, they're, they're zeroing on a person. Versus, so you know, and when the two does that, by the way, they're, they're looking for approval and, and appreciation. And what a three's in the room looking for is admiration. They're really hungry for admiration. They, are, they make great salespeople. They are so good at becoming whoever they are with. And oftentimes, you know, when they're unhealthy, they'll do it because to advance their own uh, place of success in the world. So they are absolutely valued by corporate America. They are all about productivity, efficiency, and achievement. They are the classic workaholic driver, driver, type A personality. We live in a three country, so we all have some of that in us. Oh, yeah. I happen to live in a three city, so. I read once that both Muhammad Ali and Oprah Winfrey are threes, which that makes that a pretty powerful category, if you ask me. (laughs) Dorothy Day was a three, too. Mm Mm-hmm. It, uh, for threes, you know, we tend to think of all threes as being like investment bankers or people who want to get rich. And although there's there's plenty of those people because threes do want to have the symbols of of success to be on display, like peacocks, for everyone to go, ooh, that's one of the successful people. Um, it's purely contextual. So if you think of Dorothy Day, Dorothy Day, who was the founder of the Catholic Workers Movement and embraced poverty really as a way of uh, or identifying with the poor. Um, you know, it wasn't for Dorothy Day, it was really important to be the best social justice advocate of that time in, the, in, in, her, in her Catholic context. So she did great work, and she was a very self-aware person, but she was keenly aware of her own need to be approved of and noticed and admired. I was class president. I was always encouraged to get straight A's. Uh, to, you know, join uh, my college tennis team, you know, do it, always achieving these, these different heights, all these kind of superficial things. And oftentimes what can end up happening is that a three can have these kind of superficial levels of relationships and not really go deep and allow people to access their lives is something that I've had to overcome and it's made me see that in myself and want to change and transform. So, you know, people often say, you know, nine numbers, this is incredibly reductive and silly. Like, how can you say that there are only nine personality types in the world? And, and Mike, I agree with you. I like the word archetype, although I think it's confusing for people sometimes, but I like archetype a little bit better myself. But what I like to say to people is, you know, on the color spectrum, let's just take the color red and say that it's a, it's the equivalent to the number four, okay? Well, on the, on the spectrum, there's an infinite variety of reds. I mean, just go look in a Ralph Lauren paint catalog. You'll find out how many reds there are. Um, but, but literally, there's, there's an infinite variety of shades or hues of red. And so what I like to tell people is, is that, you know, if you're a four or red, let's say, in terms of your personality, um, you are a, a unique hue or shade of red that is not to be repeated, but, but there, because there's an infinite number of possible reds for you to inhabit as a human being. And that goes for every single number on the, on the Enneagram, you know, if we think of it more as colors than as, you know, locked 
boxes. I like, you know, I think it's a, kind of this weird infinite variety of sameness within numbers, you know. You're always red, but you're your own shade of it. That, that helped me right away to get past the whole fear that this was going to be a reductive system that um, was just going to be too tight for anybody to take seriously. So my name is Carlos, and I am a four. I'm generally very melodramatic and emotional and speak in hyperbole and sensitive and whatnot. Hi there, my name is Christy. I'm from South Africa. I'm a number four. I'm very much in my head a lot of the time. I've always felt like I'm different. I think so contrary to the people around me. I thought it was just because that was something my mom instilled in us, that weird is good. 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 I am artistic and creative. I love making music. I love being a My core motivation is to be authentic. I want to be able to be true and honest with myself and with everyone and everything that I encounter. The need of feeling things deeply, almost in order to authenticate my experiences. Speaking my identity through many forms of art and really through experience and emotion. Stand out from the crowd. Fours are people who are wedded to uh, authenticity and they're a little disappointed I think in the sellout from all of us to kind of try to be like each other they really desire to have that unique flavor that everybody has to offer they're people who are often called the romantic some people say that they have a need to be special or to be unique I would say that I'm coming to believe they have a need to be known. And I'm not sure everybody wants to be known, but fours do, and I think they're the least understood number on the Enneagram. I also think they're the most complex number. I also think there are fewer fours than any other number in the world. They are people who are attracted to unusual things in life, be it clothes or food or friends or art. Fours have a tendency to appear to the untrained eye to be just a little bit depressed, but reality is they are people who are comfortable with a melancholy mood, and they're careful not to get too caught up in fake optimism or false happiness. They rather want to intensify moments of joy and they're comfortable bearing witness to pain in other people, and that's very difficult to find. Ian has, uh, you know, we work together a lot. We've been together a lot. We've just written a book together, and he has the same emotional movement in an hour that I probably have in five or six hours. (laughs) And so it's very difficult when you're with a four to know what you're plugging into because you could have talked to them an hour and a half ago and things were looking uh, pretty bright and optimistic. And then there's a disappointment that has to be embraced by fours before they can let it go. Fours don't see you unless you have genuine, authentic feelings. I think every four I know is driven to make a unique contribution to the world. 
if they entered a, a contest as photographers, I think they would want to have the most unique photo and not the best photo. It's like first place is kind of passe, and uniqueness is hard to come by. Fours are loyal. They struggle with relationships, so they are afraid you'll leave, so they push you away, and then they're afraid you won't come back, so they pull you back in. And they do a lot of pushing and pulling. Yeah, because we're, we're terribly self-absorbed, I'd like to take the next hour to talk about myself. Um, <laughs> well, apparently most of our listeners are fours and fives, so okay. you can take a little extra go. time yeah, on fours. Yeah, just, just a data point. We like reached out and asked people to send in their Enneagram stories for people who had heard about it, and an overwhelming majority of the responses were fives and fours for this Oh, program. I'm not surprised. Just incredible overrepresentation. Well, that kind of makes sense, I think. Um, I would say the big thing for me about fours, one, is they have this feeling that something is missing. And that the sense that there's a at the core of their being, there is this deficiency or this missing piece. And so as they look around the world, they have this hunch that everybody else has it except them. And they don't know why God or the forces of the universe sort of left it out or took it away. And and but they feel like until they get that missing piece, they're never gonna know the happiness that everybody else knows. And so as they look around the world, they, they have this sort of kind of moodscape of envy on the inside of their life because they're always looking around wanting your happiness or, or your way of being in the world. It just feels like it looks like it's easier for others to, to be in the world. They're, Heathcliff and Catherine in Wuthering Heights, they've they're, they're got their nose pressed against the glass looking in at their neighbor's party. And they, they know that they'll never be able to get in uh, and that they'll never enjoy life the way the people on the other side of the glass do. And, and that's a perfect image for how, a, I think, a, a, a four that's not very self-aware probably feels much of the time. Do you all want to go get an antidepressant and come back now that you heard that? <laughs> <laughs> Who are some fours? Who are fours? I'll um, tell you. You got one, Susie? I got a, Thomas you know. Merton. Oh, yeah. Thomas Merton, probably the most famous. And for those who have some Enneagram knowledge on board, he was a four with a five wing. And that is probably a big piece of what made him so compelling because he appealed to folks head and heart. And when Mm. you can do that, you can really um, gather a following, I would say. Yeah. I, I think um, the fours that really resonate with me, Tim Burton would be a classic four, the film director. I mean, you, you see Edward yeah. Scissorhands, and you've really got a four in your, on your bead. I think another one, I don't know if he's a four. He could be a five, I guess. I, don't, I mean, we don't like to type others. I'm just sort of doing this you know, in a very two-dimensional way. But when I hear Sufjan Stevens' record, Carrie and Lowell, um, yeah. that's a four record, man. There's a disproportionate number of artists in the world who are fours. And sadly, when you see the lists of fours that come out, you know, like sometimes there'll be a list in a book, literally half of them did not end their, well, their lives very well. Um, they, they often produced great art, but tragic lives. Yeah. On the Enneagram, I am a four. 
when I first learned about the Enneagram and learned my number, I understood it to mean at the time that I was a quote unquote individualist. Um, I thought it meant I was supposed to be this melancholic, creative artist type. But that didn't bring me any true understanding of who I was and what drove me. Um, but through Richard Rohr's writings and work, however, um, I was able to see and understand that my core motivation is to be authentic. Uh, I want to be able to be true and honest with myself and with everyone and everything that I encounter. And now that I see that that's what motivates me, I'm also able to better understand why I might have negative visceral reactions uh, to situations that I might have at work or with friends or family and even at church sometimes. Um, having a grasp on my desire to be authentic has helped me to better understand myself and also helped me to treat others with more grace and understanding and ultimately with love. Okay, quick commercial break here. What would a two-day liturgical experience led by Science Mike and myself be like? Well, you could probably expect some fiery conversation, some open, honest space for dialogue, doubt, and good old-fashioned nerdery. But if you'd like to join us September 16th and 17th in Denver, Colorado, or October 21st and 22nd in Chicago, Illinois, you may also be pleased to discover some bizarre spiral dynamics, infused liturgical meditations, music, and other experiences. A lot of the people who listen to this show would self-identify as spiritually homeless or frustrated. People who are wrestling with big questions and hard thoughts. We think that this sort of thing happens best around other people who will understand what you're going through and will love you in the middle of it. So that's why we get together. These are actually the only two events that we have on the books for the rest of the year for the liturgists, so we'd love to see you. There's still some tickets left. Get them today. If you're interested, go to theliturgists.com for more info. My name is Dylan, and I'm a five. Five. I hate personality tests because they never seem to describe me. And instead, they only demonstrate a couple of personality traits I exhibit because I just told the test that I exhibit those traits. I have to ask lots of questions. I have to satisfy my curiosity. I love the Enneagram in part because I'm a five, which means that systems of information just fit right into my wheelhouse because they feed right into my desire to see through. Uh, be much more naturally inclined to just sort of sit and think and organize and categorize and come up with models for things instead of just doing. Fives are in the mentally centered triad or the head triad of the Enneagram with sixes and sevens. And they are called the observer uh, or the investigator. They need space and they need to perceive um, and our definition of perceive would be to fully understand things. They want, um, usually, enough adequate resources so that they don't have to depend on other people. They tend to hoard the few necessities in life that would ensure a private existence. 
the fear piece um, is interesting because they are kind of uncomfortable in the world. And they have a limited amount of energy, and it's kind of like manna. They get the same amount every day, and when it starts to run low, they have a need to kind of pull back. So lots of fives are described as being aloof when actually they're just managing the energy level that they have so that they can recharge and be back in the world, um, we could say, for the next day and the next day and the next day. They manage their fear or they try to control it with knowing. So they gather knowledge and information and they don't like ambiguity and of course like the internet but they are a growing they have a growing awareness i think that information is not knowledge and knowledge is not wisdom and fives are people who want to dive deep enough to be wise so my guess would be in washington dc many of the patents pending and Many of the patents for things that were invented were invented by fives on the Enneagram. For them, their mental life is very sustaining. They're kind of Buddhist-like in their detachment. They're the most emotionally detached of all the types, and that tends to mean that they are capable of neutrality. I'm a, as a two on the Enneagram, I, I only understand neutrality in terms of some abject idea that pertains to other people and not to me. I have a very difficult time with neutrality. They often observe rather than participate. And if you want to know a really great five, and if you want to read a really great book, Houston Smith's uh, latest memoir, which I think he wrote at 92, the name of the book is Tales of Wonder. And it gives you a look at the reality that while everything I just said I think is true, they are explorers, and they like new things. They want to know about how other people see and how other people think. And yet, aware that they tend to think differently, sometimes they're a little bit sarcastic or a little bit cynical in their responses to life. My mom was a five. My best friend is a five. And I had to overcome my need for lots of affection with both of them in order to be able to discover their love for me because they they don't generally like lots of touching and hugging and feeling and personal exchange. One of the ways that they manage to not be controlled by life is by not getting terribly involved in life. It's almost like they have a magic shield And fives, if they're in a group and they don't want you to see them, they just kind of pull up this magic shield and you don't see them. Or we just walk away. (laughs) Yes, yes. Or you just go home. That's the Michael Gunger power move who just walks out. (laughs) One more important thing I want to say is this. I think it is extremely brave of fives to show up for intimate relationships because it costs them so much safety and it costs them more than any other number. Yep, they have to surrender so many of the things that they've, they've t- they typically hoard, privacy, space, um, 
personal information. Information. Yeah, information is knowledge. I mean, power too. Uh, no one believes that more than uh, than a five. So having to share personal information, boy, giving that up is so difficult. So you're a pretty special person if a if a five kind of throws the white flag up the pole and says, "I love you." It's a big deal. We got a five on the phone. Uh, yeah, I'm a five. Yeah, Michael, did you leave? Yeah, I'm here. I'm Michael, a five. Did you leave the room? I, I think yet? I've got a, a pretty strong four wing too, but. Five of the four wing. Yeah, there's a lot about both of those numbers that really resonate. But the five, yeah. yeah. That, uh, it was all ringing pretty true. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing I can almost always, and I think this is like when the shield goes up, you know, they have this force field to go invisible. But sometimes you'll be talking to a five and you'll be looking in their eyes and you'll think to yourself, there's nobody inside that body right now. Like <laughs> their brain their brain is somewhere hovering about eight feet above them, <laughs> looking down on the conversation, yeah. but they're not actually in the body. They're actually looking at you with these kind of empty eyes because their brain is looking down from another space, kind of analyzing and taking in information about the conversation, but they're kind of delivering a paper at a symposium while they're talking to you, but they're kind of observing it from a distance. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Or, I mean, I mean, I've literally watched like if if the if people are taking too much of his mana, <laughs> Michael will get this like first the brain floats above the body, and then all of a sudden it like puts on a jetpack and flies yes. into the skull and hits yep. a big red button, and then mm-hmm. he just yep. just beelines yep. Yep. for an exit, <laughs> like it, it almost a borderline panic, uh, <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'll see Michael later. <laughs> That's amazing. That that energy conservation thing was a, a very true thing because I've I hate how I know there have been interactions where people are interpreting how I'm being as being aloof or judgmental or proud or arrogant or some something where I'm like just writing everybody off. But it really is is a sort of like the conservation of energy thing is really what it is. Like I don't know how I'm going to move forward in life unless I like I have nothing to say or give at this moment I have to find a way to recharge this battery or just going to lay on the ground in some sort of catatonic state I think one of the things we should say about that is that every single encounter costs you energy so every handshake every phone call every conversation every uh, time you uh, are playing with your little one all of those things cost you and you don't have energy to waste on people who don't have anything to say or who are um, unaware that there's a limit. Um, You know, eights have the most energy of all the numbers on the Enneagram. And actually, while fives have a measured amount, nines have the least amount. And I'll revisit that again when we get there. But (laughs) I I think we have to be respectful of fives energy. And not ask them for things for energy that we yeah, don't you, need. You know what? You know what? Su- because they it's don't have Su- it. To give. You know, uh, one of my closest friends is a five, and so is yours. That's fascinating. No, I would say that the the beautiful thing about having a five friend when you're a person who does a lot of feelings, you know, is they really can look at you after a while and go, "Are we done yet? Are we are we finished with all these feelings? <laughs> <laughs> because I I just really need you to be over with this right now." So. We can talk about something in, in maybe more objective terms. Um, well, we're, we're, 
We're into uh, we're still in that mental realm and now we're we're heading into the sixes. The sixes are called either the loyalists or often the devil's advocates. Um, they are a wonderful group of people. We, Many Enneagram teachers believe that there are more sixes in the world than any other type, that more than 50, 50% or more of the population are sixes. You know, it's pure speculation, but I think there's a lot of merit to the idea that there's a whole lot of them in the world. Um, so here's the deal with sixes. Uh, I'm married they, to a six, so I'm very, very fond of them. Oh, oh, you should be. And they Absolutely. see their mission in the world is keeping the other eight types from dying. <laughs> well, you're, they, I think that's why God actually put them on the world in such numbers. <laughs> actually, I, th- I, I actually think that sixes are kind of the glue that hold the world together. Um, Sixes um, have a deep need to feel secure. Um, you, they are fearful people when they tend to get real. The fear that they experience actually is probably closer to anxiety. Um, that's sort of the dominant emotion that kind of runs, that kind of buzzes like a, you know, like a, one of those, like a fluorescent light that's gone bad in the background. You know, it's just this buzz of of anxiety that runs at a low level or in spikes from time to time. They are notorious for um, playing out and rehearsing in their minds worst-case scenarios as a way of preparing themselves for what they perceive to be is the ever-present possibility of, you know, danger, a disaster happening at, 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 at any moment. So the world is a very scary and dangerous place to to sixes. They're always scanning around, trying to figure out if what they're dealing with is friendly or is it hostile, is it always checking it around. Sixes are very concerned about who's in authority. Their eyes are always focused on who's in authority. So there are two kinds of sixes. It's the only number that has two variants. The first kind of uh, six, in response to authority will um, submit. And the reason they do that is they perceive that the authority is the source of their security. Now, the authority could be a person, it could be a pastor, it could be a president, it could be a belief system, uh, a religion, um, a set of rules, you know, whatever it is, they see that person or thing as being the source of their security, so they submit to it. They're called phobic sixes. The other kind of six which often looks like an eight, so they'll get confused sometimes, is, can be quite aggressive. And they are very, very suspicious of authority figures. So they're always thinking, what are you trying to pull over our eyes? <laughs> Jenny? Um, what promises are you making that you're not going to fulfill? Or I'm watching to see if you are. And so they're... Assumption is is that the authority figure is is not to be trusted, and 
unlike that phobic six, uh, a counter phobic six will bring an authority figure down uh, in a big way. They'll take you down. I call them honey badgers. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, yeah, exactly. You know, there's a great expression. I think it was Churchill says said it uh, about uh, another nation, but this is about six, as you can say. They're either at your feet or they're at your throat. That kind of describes perfectly. They're either submissive stance or they're more hostile and aggressive stance. Truth is, is that every six is, is really a combination of both of those things, which is reflective of their sort of natural ambivalence that is a hallmark feature of their lives. You know, this kind of never, uh, they're always kind of questioning themselves, wondering, uh, are they making the right decisions, having to do a lot of check-in with other people. They doubt and question things, and they're prone to pessimism. Um, but when they're healthy, oh my gosh, sixes are awesome. Um, they are, I think, many possibly the funniest number on the Enneagram. You've got people like Larry David would be a classic six. George Costanza, the <laughs> ultimate six, uh, because they can they can <laughs> leverage all of that insecurity and a little bit of paranoia and all that stuff into into ways of making you laugh at them. It's fantastic. I want to say a thing or two that's perhaps a little bit risky, and you guys feel free to just edit Uh-oh. it out if you don't want it. Uh-oh, here we go. We're real afraid um, of risk on the Liturgist podcast. Uh... <laughs> we have 100 days to go. Oh, I thought you weren't going to go here. Please do. I wasn't, but after I, after I heard you talking about sixes, I just feel... I, I I think it's our responsibility to go here, Ian, and in kind of a All right, more serious way than we usually operate. Um, I watched both conventions, and I want to say that if we are correct, those in our line of Enneagram teaching that believe that a high percentage, close to 50% of the people in the world are sixes on the Enneagram, then I think we would have to tip our hat to the reality that what they are longing for is to feel secure. That's what they need from the universe. And I'm astonished by how much pandering there is to anxiety, which for me would be concern about possible future events instead of fear having to do with what's really happening right this minute that we need to deal with. And if I look at my own life and the times in my life when I was afraid, I was malleable and manipulatable. And I also looked to authority for telling me what was right and wrong because when you're afraid it's so easy to doubt yourself and sixes have a tendency to doubt themselves and to not trust themselves anyway and I I think this is a, a time when those of us who have some Enneagram wisdom on board need to with all the compassion that I feel and that I can muster think about what it must be like to be listening to all of this talk and thinking about what it would be like to have to somehow find our way through that 
in order to find a place to stand and to know then what is ours to do and then to know whether it would have any effect on the world if we did it. And I'm very sad that I think there's an awareness of people's fear and that people who would be leaders are uh, exacerbating that for their own gain. I'm on the road a lot and I'm crazy in love with my husband. And when I'm home, one of my favorite things to do is just fall into this big sofa that we have and eating popcorn and drinking a Dr. Pepper and watching a Law and Order that I've only seen twice. And all that works really well for me because I don't have to really pay attention and I can be with Joe, but I'm a little bit interested in the TV. And that has been ruined for me here in the Dallas Metroplex because there's a a news uh, station that has this young perky woman come out 15 minutes before the news to get your attention and one night she's on the screen in my relaxed moment screaming that I need to be careful for dishwasher danger. Dishwasher danger. Your time now is 639 and before you start any appliance in your house this morning stop even call your friends you're gonna want to see this story. Lawyers tell me there could be as many as 20 million homes with dishwashers that contain a defective component, a component that could burst into flames while running. And I turned and looked at Joe and said, is there something wrong with our dishwashers? And he said, I don't know. I don't think so. So to shorten the story, about three weeks later, I was at Home Depot with Joe and he was buying stuff that he wants to buy, and I was um, headed over toward dishwashers. And there was a dishwasher salesman there with his tie on and ready to greet me. And he said, ma'am, can I help you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm just looking, but I would like to ask you a question. Have you sold more dishwashers in the last couple of weeks than you normally would in a two-week period? And his eyes got really big, and he said, are you from corporate? And I said, no, I'm not. I'm just wondering. And he said, I've sold more dishwashers in the last two weeks than in any two-week period of my 35-year career. Regardless of sales or uh, tax-free weekends, I've sold more in the last two. And I just want to that's the kind of malleability that I'm talking about. That's the kind of thing I'm saying. I think that they people, whoever they are, are creating fear, and then we respond. And I think sixes in particular respond because they're looking for safety, and I think there's a cruelty in that that should be addressed. Well, our media is built on that. That's uh, that's a real thing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. The entire advertising industry is built on the premise of step one is to invent a new problem to make people insecure about so that you can sell them the solution. Happy, happy life. Happy, happy life. Being a seven is so much fun. You can keep all your pain out of sight. I'll take one of everything And let's just keep things light
being a seven is so much fun You can keep all your pain out of sight Being a seven is so much fun You can keep all your pain out of sight Sevens uh, are so very different than sixes And you can't believe that they're in the same triad Five, six, and sevens uh, Which are this, this mental triad um, because they look so different. And now, the way to think about this is that all three just deal with fear. They have different fear management systems. So, like, for example, if a six is dealing with, like, with fear by pessimism, the seven deals with it with optimism. Um, sevens, uh, they are sometimes called the epicures. Sometimes we like to call them the enthusiasts. Um, every day to a seven is like a school snow day. It's like whatever I'm doing now is fun, but the next thing that I'm going to do is going to be even more fun. And then while I'm doing that one, I'm going to plan something that's even more fun. It's like experience is never enough. I always need more experience. Howdy, howdy. My name is Melissa and I'm from Dallas, Texas. I am a seven. That means that I bring a lot of natural enthusiasm and encouragement to pretty much every situation. I also know that I then hate all the hard spaces, so I have to make an extra concerted effort to do the hard things because the fun things are way better. Um, But I'm learning and... Every day, making space to do something hard, even if it's only for 15 minutes. I love your show. Thanks so much. They, they, they just have this remarkable, sunny, incredible, enthusiastic, optimistic, you know, the uh, unlimited possibilities of life. They, they are um, just some of the most winsome, funny, great storytellers. They are always planning the great next adventure. They're always thinking about the next escapade. They're always the first one to, you know, if someone says, let's go do this, they're the first one to yell shotgun and be in the car. They, <laughs> without a doubt, I have a seven son and um, so does Suzanne. And uh, so we know a lot about sevens. What's really going on with sevens for all of their fun and all of their planning and thinking about this wonderful future, what they're really doing is dealing with, uh, with fear. For a seven, what they don't want to do, the thing they need more than anything else, is to avoid painful feelings. Really to avoid uh, feelings of anxiety, of boredom, of grief, of any negative feeling or experience. They just want to tamp it down. What they do is they just overcompensate by just turning on the sunshine as one i think it's helen palmer someone like that said you know they just have champagne running through their veins which i love that that kind of image of sevens but it's really a way of coping with this feeling of uh i just don't i just don't want to feel bad stuff i want to have this very narrow range of emotions that go from ecstasy to to happiness (laughs) and that's about it i want to go from ecstasy to happiness but nothing below the happiness range that dips toward anything negative they're kind of emblematic figure they're they're like peter pan they really just don't want to grow up they want to stay peter pan and they just they want to try everything at least once they we assign a different deadly (laughs) sin to each of the the nine or seven deadly sins plus two to all of the numbers and for sevens, the, 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 
really their deadly sin is gluttony. They just want to eat life alive. They want to have every, you know, if you take them to a buffet restaurant and they want, they'll just pile their plate up with everything. They don't want to miss anything. You know, if you, gosh forbid, you go to Europe with a seven. I've done it. I mean, they are running all over a city from one exciting thing <laughs> to the next, um, just wanting to, wanting to take it in. They need to keep their options open so that they never have to face pain or unpleasantness or, or boredom. They've, they've always got to have an escape hatch, always be in, in motion. They, they're, they're very charming. The first sort of line of defense for a seven is charm. My son is one of the most charming people in the world. Suzanne's son, Joel, is charming. They, they'll just capture you. They're magnetic. Um, but again, a lot of that is, uh, particularly, let's say, with an authority figure, I am not kidding you. I have never seen anyone get out of trouble faster than sevens can. They just charm their way out of anything. They have monkey mind. You know, they tend to have lots of scattered thoughts that kind of run a million miles uh, an hour through their head. They're typically, they have a lot of trouble making commitments because they don't want to feel trapped in anything. When they're healthy, they are some of the most wonderful, fun, deep people in the world. But if they don't do their work, if they don't address the fact that, uh, you know, you can't escape unpleasant feelings forever, they can also be the most shallow people in the world. And they can, you know, if you meet a 55 or 60-year-old seven that hasn't done their work and is still like Peter Pan, it's, it's pretty sad. They'll be, they're they're kind of known as dilettantes or, or, or shallow folks. So I'm an Enneagram type seven. And what I have realized is that that has allowed me to redeem the idea of being a quitter. Uh, Many years ago, someone called me a natural born quitter and it haunted me for a long time. Whereas now I've realized that me at my very best is someone who knows when to quit. And I quit quickly and well. And I move on to the things that I know are the things that bring me to life and that I do really well. Examples of sevens? Robin Williams, I suspect. Stephen Colbert, don't you think? Oh, Colbert is a great seven. That's a great example of a seven. Hey, you know what the thing about Colbert is? When you hear Colbert talk about his family and the tragedy of death in his family, you can really tell that guy has not run away from his feelings. I mean, he's a man Mm. that is well acquainted with grief. And it really, when, you're, when you listen to him go to the space of being serious and honest, he's very, very deep. Um, and, you know, you don't always get that with older sevens. What, what do sevens go? So there's this idea that numbers kind of go towards other numbers in health or disintegration or in stress. What do sevens go to in health? Five, right? Five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they go mm-hmm. to five. Okay, yeah. interesting. Oh, is that, I go to seven in, in unhealth. Right. Or are in stress. Can you explain that? Well, let me start by saying, I really don't think you can take care of yourself without that energy you get from that number that you go to in stress. It gives you something in those stressful times that you need. And I think it would be very difficult to experience holistic healing without the number that you go to in security or, or when you have it a little more together. 
So um, if if we were going to just, Michael, we'll just do fives. Um, fives go to seven when they are um, when they go to seven. There is a lightheartedness about them that makes them more approachable, so that relationships seem a little more likely it, it it's like if you are in a relationship with a five and you feel that that pull toward being thoughtful and being heady and you experience that sevenness in them then you know that there's a lighter side there that there's something that you can tap into that's a little more ordinary that maybe is a a little bit more like you are yeah we have like uh Usually in stressful times, we have like fat kid nights where we'll just go get like donut sundays or, <laughs> you know, just binge Netflix nights or whatever. Just it, when Mike's family came over, we, we invented something um, <laughs> called post, Postmates and Chill, which is sort of like uh, our family version of, of Netflix and Chill. But it was everybody like we have this thing called Postmates in L.A. that you can just order anything from anywhere and they'll come deliver it to your house. And so we were having a hard time figuring out where to eat and everyone's just like, everyone get whatever you want and we'll just bring it to the house and have this like feast of, uh, of everything. And, uh, yeah, very kind of seven ish, uh, feeling, but I, that I, I really enjoy like kind of letting my hair down as a seven sometimes when I'm, when things are really busy or really crazy or stressed out kind of going to, I I usually gain weight in those faces. (laughs) When we're on tour, he goes like seven crazy. Like it's the most yeah. physically exhausted you get. And Michael's just like, hey, let's go do this. Hey, let's do that. Let's drink this. Let's eat that. Let's da 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 da. And then because I'm a nine, we'll talk about that in a minute. But like in stress, I just kind of want to like completely stop moving at all. And so his reaction like to do more in times of stress is completely opposite of my turning into an inanimate object um and it i have to like lean really hard into my peacemaker to be like okay let's go and ice cream because <laughs> i just so he just drinks heavily I, right i just want to turn into an inert object i don't even want to move so it's kind of wild you know one of the things that i just want to say about that that i alluded to earlier is that um ian and i are very different i'm a two and he's a four and when we're traveling together and working together we have different needs just like you guys do and um we uh on our podcast we interviewed cindy morgan and andrew um career yes and and they're a two and a four and they talked about being on the road together and earlier when we were uh kind of looking at whether or not this is um too restrictive and whether or not it is too limiting. I was trying to say it could be that, but it doesn't have to be that. Instead, it could be that when we're on the road together, we know how to give each other that extra grace so that we can stand to travel together. And you go eat ice cream when you don't necessarily want Mm -hmm. ice cream because you know that that's a place that he goes, right? And he, I'm sure, I'm sure, Michael, you're reading Mike and knowing that you're thinking, you know, I, I, the ice cream was good. I kind of like to have a little chocolate on top of that, but I'm not going to ask because he doesn't have anything left to give me. 
And I, I think compassion mm-hmm. is built in to the Enneagram. And that's what the world really needs. And that's sure what we all need who are trying to work together constructively to uh, make the world a better place. So end of that little homily, and I'm going to go back to when five goes to aid and security. There is a a time when that passivity of fiveness has to be uh, overcome with something so that fives can, with eight energy, just say, yes, I'll do that. No, I'm not going to do that. I have to go home because I don't have any energy left. I have to take care of myself, and I know you don't get that, and I'm sorry, but it's not about you. It's about me. Without some eight energy, fives don't verbalize self-care needs. For one example, that would just be one example. Is that true for you, Michael? Yeah. Yeah, I I had to, when I was on tour, um, because tour tour usually is one of the most stressful times of my life, because it's it's new people all the time, new things draining you all the time. Um, And I just had to start implementing like solitude days where everybody just understood Michael just disappears for a lot of the day and go off and just charge my batteries somehow in silence. And I just had to like make that decision while everybody's like, let's go do this. And well, no, it's Michael's solitude day. He's just going to say no, which is uncomfortable for me because I do want to like, I would love to be present for everybody all the time, uh, but I just don't have the energy. Yeah, I, I think those of us who move to eight, you know, twos go to eight in stress and without it, I, I just can't say no to things. I just keep saying yes. And when I get in that eight space, I can say no and not feel like I have to tell you why. Hmm. See, this is the beautiful thing about the Enneagram, um, just by way of commentary, and that is that unlike lots of other personality typing systems, it actually accounts for, takes into account, the fact that the human personality is fluid, it's dynamic, it's not a static thing. That, um, you know, obviously it's situational. If it were, you know, I'm sitting here in a living room and uh, talking to you all on the, on the phone right now and having a ball and my personality is in, in a one state. But if, if I were in Afghanistan right now in a, a dangerous setting, it would not be what it is right now. It, it's very situational how the, the human personality is constantly in flux. And so unlike these other typologies, it realizes that, look, you know, in the course of a day, there's, there's this healthy place your personality can be in, this unhealthy place it can be in, and this place it can, can go to to draw resources and stress or characteristic traits when it's in security. So again, it, 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 I just love the idea that it, it takes all this into account, makes space for the reality of the human personality is uh, always selfing. You know, like self is not a noun, really. It's a verb. We're always selfing and, and changing and dynamic. So that speaks to this whole idea of stress and security and not being locked into some, you know, trait-bound uh, label. It's one of the most wonderful things about the Enneagram. I'm an Enneagram 8.
What that means to me is that I have these strengths that are like effortless superpowers. And mine are aliveness, immediacy, and confidence. In fact, I can project confidence and strength even when I don't feel them. It's just like a superpower. But my type has pitfalls too. My core need is to be against. And whereas that can make me a really powerful activist and advocate for justice, it can also make me belligerent, forceful, and uncompromising when you put those together with my strengths. I have to cultivate vulnerability to integrate to Enneagram 2. And that's really hard because being seen as weak is basically my biggest fear. But I find it safest to pursue that with kids and pets. So eights, uh, if you've ever read Kazantzakis' Zorba the Greek, you know right away what an eight is like. Um, the eights uh, are characterized by this tremendous intensity. Uh, they just are... Uh, let me give you an example of this. When an eight walks into the room, you feel uh, almost like the song Hail to the Chief should come on. You, you can feel this incredible energy radiating from that person and it's it's really intensity but what people often experience it as is anger it's like this feeling that this person wants you to submit to them it's this feeling that uh, this person has come into the space and has has just colonized it almost annexed it with this tremendously big presence and it has nothing to do with size like my daughter Kaylee and, and and Joey as well these are pretty diminutive people right they're not these are not you know they're not like you know Dwayne the Rock Johnson or something they they they're pretty small but i'm just telling you when they walk in a room people's heads turn because they can just feel the intensity and the passion that's coming out of them um, eights uh, have a high need to be in control over the environment uh, to create really a sense of safety. They're very power-oriented. They can overdo anything. They just, this intensity, this, this lust for life is really what it is, this terrible lust for life. They'll overeat, they'll overdrink, they'll overwork, they'll overexercise, they'll over-everything. Um, even sometimes to the detriment of their own physical health. Um, they don't really, they actually feel bigger than they actually are. They have, like my daughter Kaylee is always throwing her back out or popping a knee out because she's just overdone it again in some way. They're very loyal. They have a keen sense of, of justice. They're very concerned about justice. Lots of social justice advocates. Um, they because they're always looking out for for the underdog. Oftentimes, what people experience with eights, um, they feel like they're they're because they are actually combative and um, always looking for a good argument. And if there's not one available, they might just pick one uh, for the sake of of getting the energy. Like if a space gets too boring, and eights like, okay, we got to stir it up in here, and they'll say something like. You know, I can't go for another four years with this president. I'd rather go throw myself under a bus than four, have four more years with this president. And then they'll just sit back and watch what happens and just mix it up. They'll just love to stir it up and see what goes on. But you see, the thing about eights is 
what you and I experience as intimidation from them, they experience as intimacy. Like that's their way of connecting. It's not combat, it's connection for them. And they'll, because they're so uh, concerned about betrayal and so concerned about being controlled by you, that what they'll do is they'll sometimes pick a fight because they know that in the course of a conflict that people often tip their hands and show what they're really about. And so they're, they're trying to figure out if you're trustworthy or not. Um, so I, I, I really love eights. The thing about them that's important to know, and I'll just close with this, is that all of this intimidation and thorniness and this combativeness at times and this aggression really hides a very tender, tender heart in the middle of their person. And um, it's beautiful to see when they feel safe and that tenderness comes out. It is so pure and so beautiful. When, like, when my daughter uh, allows you to see her tender feelings, uh, they are so treasured and beautiful when they emerge. Um, but eights are really... Uh, wrapping those tender feelings in all of this intensity because they're really afraid that someone's going to betray them if they wear their hearts on their sleeves. I just want to add two things to that. And one of the things I want to add is that it's real important to understand that eights really don't want to be in control of you. That's not their agenda at all. They just don't want you to be in control of them. And that's a completely different energy. Mm -hmm. And I kind of want to talk about that gender issue for a minute just to say that our culture is really very fond of male eights. Um, We like very decisive, strong, opinionated uh, male leaders who get out front and get it done and show you how and all of that. But if you put all of those same qualities in a female, then she's just a bitch. And... Um, lots of female eights, particularly young ones, are really struggling with that misperception of who they are. Yeah, it's a very unfair um, system. And I've watched my daughter as she's come out of college, and I've watched lots of eights struggle because um, there's this natural belief in our in our culture that you know remains, which is that you know women should all be these soft, two-ish kinds of nurturing types and the moment that they start to exert leadership because that's who they are or aggression people you know particularly men they got a whole vocabulary of things that they call women who have that kind of spirit and it's not it's usually rarely good nadia boltz weber um is an eight on the enneagram and we did interview her on our podcast and i think it's a really good look into the window of female eightness. Martin Luther King Jr., eight on the Enneagram. Very integrated, healthy eight. I think one of our major candidates um, that I tweet about that I can't stand all the time is a very unhealthy, unself-aware eight. Yes, have you ever seen um, the British House of Cards, the, the show House of Cards? No, I haven't. I've seen the U.S. Uh, one, but not the British. Well, well 
Okay, well, so you know that Frank Underwood, he says almost the same thing, but the British actor uh, uh, who plays his role in the original House of Cards says, one might think so, but one couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> <laughs> so we're... <laughs> So I'm going to say to that, you might think so, but one couldn't possibly comment. Eights are, I've noticed, as a nine, peacemaker kryptonite. I can deal (laughs) with the entire Enneagram, even in my lowest energy state, I can make space for everyone. But it takes my best energy, my best day to accommodate eight energy in in my world because they have the opposite oh, that's interesting tell me what you do i go into my most um childlike uh <laughs> gracious submissive accommodating state in order to make the eight feel like <laughs> they're successfully you know owning the space um and if they say something i i think is absolutely outrageous and ludicrous i go well, gosh, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. <laughs> uh oh. Yeah, that's not. I mean, I think Susan and I would just. T- well, I, I'm not advice giving here, but just I can just tell you from being the dad of an eight and knowing a little bit about eights. Like, if you really want them to heal and stop it, then. And this is so hard for nines being married to one. I know, but you've got to power up and meet them with the exact amount of power that they're throwing out at you. And if you do that, then they will almost shrink down to their normal size. <laughs> but they, they really, they require you to, they, they will, actually, you're absolutely okay, invisible. Okay, but then you know, me. like, nine anger is, like, a whole different thing. And when eights in the past have made me angry, I have watched them wither in front of me. Just absolutely uh-huh. turn two inches uh-huh. tall but that like breaks your nine heart to do that. <laughs> like you can't. That's a terrible yeah. thing. Nine see two sides to everything, and that's just so problematic. It's the best yeah. part of nines, but I it's can the just, worst part. Yeah. So, Mike, I can just tell you that most eights I know, if you can make them, you know, bring them down to size a little bit, whatever they feel in that moment, if they, you know, they they'll respect you. They're, you're invisible to them though until you take your stand. And they 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 sense that you're a waffler or sitting on the fence about stuff. They just they just see through you. They'll walk right by and go find somebody that they they think is gonna you know have enough um, gumption to be able. Right, to, that's my goal. That's you know, why I'm submissive. Is they just move on and leave me alone? Because <laughs> <laughs> it like well, a little bit you know. to, to spoiler alert a little bit of the nine is an instinctual ability to get the other eight types to kind of do what you want without having to direct them to. Yes, just to add to the spoiler alert, here's how nines do that. They're passive-aggressive, and they're the most stubborn number on the Enneagram. Let me calm your troubled mind I relate to every side Oh, just please, dear God, don't fight I'll be your number nine I never met a soul I didn't like Except maybe when that eight kept trying to fight 
nihilistic, optimistic. Baptist, atheist, and mystic. Maybe somehow all of you are right. I'm talking about Science Mike. We love you, Mr. Science Mike. Number nine. Nines are they're called the peacemakers or the mediators. They're, they have a real need to avoid conflict, and they need to avoid conflict at all costs, like, because conflict can lead to disconnection in relationships. And the last thing they want is to feel disconnected from, from uh, the people they love or just from, from people in general. One of the things I love about nines is that nines can see uh, the world from every point of view. Um, there's, a, there's an Enneagram teacher, one of, one of the Enneagram teachers I've studied, talks about how nines can see the world through the eyes of every number on the Enneagram, except through the eyes of the nine. <laughs> so, you know, here they are, way up on the top of the Enneagram. If you, people don't know the, the diagram of the Enneagram, nines are way at the top. And so they have like one foot down on the, the what's called the compliant side of the Enneagram, right? So down on, they got a foot over here on the on three, and then they got another foot on six, which is on the, you know, the, the non-compliant side. So you have this ambivalence all the time where nines don't know whether to uh, defy or obey. They're always kind of going back and forth in their head, wanting to kind of do both in a given situation. And so they're like, I, and then they get stuck in this place of ambivalence. Um, Nines are self-forgetting, and what they have forgotten really is their anger. They have forgotten uh, or fallen asleep to these animal instincts that drive other people to, to do life. It's as though nines have so fallen asleep to their own instincts and to their, that positive side of anger in some ways that um, they never rise up and take hold of their own life. And rather what they do is they merge or fuse with the life of someone else who is more defined than they are, more um, what what would feel like um, solid, and begin to take on the preferences and the opinions and the priorities of that other person so that they become kind of indistinct. Sometimes people will describe nines as being blurry or fuzzy. Um, I've heard some people say that uh, one friend of mine is married to a nine and says, you know, my, my husband sometimes feels more like an environment than a person. And I always found that to be a very interesting um, kind of description because nines can get kind of indistinct and they just sort of carry this sort of perfume of peacemaking and of uh, coming into a space and kind of bl- making themselves uh, merge socially or, or with an individual. And what they do this for is all in service of avoiding conflict, you know, because they're worried that if I, if I assert my priorities, my preferences, my opinions, my desires, what I want to do with my life, if I assert those things, it might come in conflict with what others want and what their priorities are and what their preferences are. And I don't want anything that would rock the boat or possibly make, um, lead to something that would, would, would be 
confrontational and therefore create disconnection with another person. The, the message that nines hear growing up or they pick up really is it's not okay to assert yourself. And what they hear growing up is your presence really doesn't matter. Like what you want, your priorities, your opinions, whatever, it's just not as important as what other people's are. And so they just say, well, I'm just going to go along to get along. And I'm just going to be the guy that kind of is able to, you know, they just say, I'm just going to go along and I'm going to get along. I'm not going to cause any trouble. And everybody's just going to perceive me as the nice guy or the nice girl. And they'll never see me angry because I never get overtly angry. Because, But when I do get angry, as Sue says, I let it come out sideways. And, and the way it'll come out is stubbornness, stonewalling, silence, conveniently forgetting things like picking up the dry cleaning as promised or uh, a host of other things. So I love nines, but uh, they, they come with their own set of challenges that I will say once they get to do some work on them, I think they're the most naturally spiritual number on the Enneagram. They, they really have access to the highest levels of... So they're, they're incredible. Uh, well, to give you an example, the Dalai Lama is a nine. They just, once they get this sort of place of health, they just access a place in spirituality that is powerful because they understand how to merge. Mm. They then can apply that ability to merge or to have union with God in a way that I think other people don't have access mm. to. I'm a nine, and what that means to me is understanding that uh, one of my basic, I guess, weaknesses is that laziness and sloth, if you use the old language, is one of my biggest vices, and to, I guess, be aware of that, and while some people might say that I'm really calm or that I always have kind of a piece about me um a lot of times i know that behind that piece is just kind of a a laziness of not wanting to deal with problems or deal with anything really and i sometimes can shock people by the amount of naps that i can take in a week so sloth is the sin that is um assigned in ways to the nine number and i I think that would best be defined as a desire to be unaffected by life. And nines can just manage their lives somehow where they don't, uh, where they aren't affected. I, I'm married to one, love one, have parented four children with one, and I, it's very frustrating for me sometimes because I can't keep from being affected by so much of life. And the other thing I wanted to add is that there are times when you think, uh, nines aren't listening to you when you're talking to them, and that's because they're not listening to you. <laughs> and I, I, I hope my wife does not hear this podcast. <laughs> it's absolutely true. <laughs> well, I just, um, I really think it's maybe as much as a third of the time that nines are just not paying attention. So <laughs> when, 
when things are really important, you kind of need to circle back and make sure that everybody heard the important stuff. Oh, yeah, because you'll come back later and you'll say to them something like, you know, well, did you such and such? And they'll look at you like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. And you'll say, well, I, I said to you this morning at 6 o'clock that I was going to do something at 2 o'clock. And they'll look at you like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I, I never heard you say. And you'll say to them, but you looked right at me. Or you, you answered like, me. You looked. Yeah, you answered me. You said, and, and they'll go, I did? And you'll be like, oh, my gosh, you weren't even listening. You were just on autopilot. There's this <laughs> image. I've heard some people talk about with the nine of the inner sanctum. And I've learned that as a nine, mm-hmm. I can go into my inner sanctum and just chill there and just leave my yes. like conversational subsystems of my brain on autopilot. So I can have conversations with people in which yes. they experience me as present and responsive. And I am literally not there and will have zero recollection of the conversation. <laughs> yep. 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 That yep. is yep. absolutely true. And, and you know, the, the inner sanctum thing actually is a really important thing because one of the things we didn't mention was, is that what this is the, I mean, this is kind of you know, every number. Uh, and this is what makes the Enneagram, I think, in, you know, in my own personal opinion, superior to so many other typologies is it's going to tell you who you are at your best. And it's going to tell you who you are at your worst. It's going to tell you about your blessings, and it's going to tell you about your blights. And so when it, when it comes to nines, here's, here's the thing that people don't see about nines. They come off as being the nice gal and the nice guy, because they really are, you know. I mean, they, they get along with people. But what people don't understand is the kind of part of the dark side of the nine is, is what they're doing is they're guarding this, this terrible need for inner calm and harmony. They, they want that inner sea that that sea inside to be completely calm. They don't want anything to disturb that inner harmony. I call it the inner hakuna matata. Uh, I do. You know what I mean? Like I just I just want everything to just to be inner chill. That's all I want. Just don't mess with my inner chill. And that's why they're always like like let's not have any problems here. Let's not have any issues. Here's the Susan tell you. You know if I say to my wife Anne. And she's, by the way, Annie's doing and is doing and has done a lot of work around this. And so this is the beautiful thing. You know, once you know what your stuff is, you can start to work with it. But in prior years, you know, 10 years ago, I could have said to Ann, what do you want to do for dinner tonight? And the first thing out of her mouth will be, I don't know. What do you want to do? Uh, if I say, do you want to um, go and do this? I don't, I don't know. What, what movie do you want to see? See, automatically, she's deferring to my opinions and to my desires instead of claiming and owning her own. Because she doesn't want to cause conflict, and because that conflict will disturb her inner harmony and peace. And that's what she's guarding. You remember earlier when I said um, nines have the least energy, while fives have the most measured energy? And that's because nines boundary themselves internally and externally. And they try to keep in anything that would cause conflict. And they try to keep out anything that would steal their peace. And that's exhausting. It's just exhausting. If they just take a seat and take a break from life, they can just doze off. I mean, life is... They took I mean, a picture of me. I went to Israel. I went to Israel and they took a picture of me because we went to a coffee shop. And we'd been in all these sessions with people talking about these terrible, terrible stories. And I just didn't see any way peace was possible. <laughs> And we sat in the coffee shop, and in like 20 seconds, 
I fell asleep sitting in a chair with my head against the wall. And no one could believe that I was oh, yeah. asleep. But I, I stayed that way like 20 minutes. They had to shake me awake to leave. Um, and it wasn't physical exhaustion. It was yep. the degree to which I was being affected by these people's stories. Um, which I think like is maybe my favorite thing about the Enneagram is expressing the vice or passion of each type. Because I've learned that sloth is like a klaxon or a warning sign in my life. When I suddenly find I want to play video games instead of read, or I'm suddenly interested in watching television, and those kinds of activities that are passive and disengaged, it means there's something that's pushing me in stress toward unhealth. And if I do a little reflection work, if I look, am I working too much? Is there a relationship that's in trouble? Whatever these things are, and fix that. I start to look more assertive. I start to have the ability to uh, know what I want to do as opposed to defining myself in reaction or merging with others. Uh, and that's what I, of all the features of the Enneagram, that is my favorite to give you a tool to watch yourself and change circumstances in a way that help you to, to grow and to live the kind of life that you want to live. One of the things I don't think we talked about is the fact that the Enneagram is non-static. And so many uh, systems that might from a distance look like the Enneagram that aren't um, have that differentiation. So in your Enneagram number, you can be healthy or average or unhealthy or even pathological. And generally that move through healthy, average, and unhealthy is kind of a daily journey that you take, or for sure a weekly journey, and you're not stuck in any certain place. And then there's also movement within the Enneagram because of the stress piece and the security piece. So I, I, I think the fact that it's, it's moving is what helps it both show you the best part of you and the worst part of you and help you find a way to... Uh, be healthier in all of that. I, it, there's definitely a warning signal in every number, like you're talking about, Mike, that tells you when you're about to really slide down into some trouble. What numbers do they move towards, nines, each way? Three and six. They're on that central triangle of the Enneagram, so they go to three in security and they go to six in stress. Yeah, when, when they go to three, man, they're, they're, they're a power to behold. I mean, once, once a three gets going on something... They can stay on it for a long time. They can really hunker down and, and get it done. But, man, if they stop, Suze, what's the expression? Nine start off slow, and then they taper off. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> they, they become subject to the law of inertia, right? They, they, you know, they just start to slow down, and if they stop, it takes a lot of energy to get that engine up and going again and but going at the same rate it was before they stopped. But uh, but they're beautiful, beautiful people. And I, I really want to underscore something about nines that, that's so important to me, spiritually speaking. I, it's, it's, um, forgive me if I'm saying it twice. But, you know, they're in this body type. And so they just have a very heightened sense of the sacramental nature of the universe. It is natural to them. When they are outdoors, if they're taking a walk or 
They're looking at the stars. They have a sense, this keen sense of the interconnectedness of all things. And this is part of their innate sort of spiritual mind, I think, and heart, because they really do feel, right, as sort of these merging creatures connected to things. And um, when that's healthy, I mean, they make incredible spiritual leaders, uh, because they have a view of the world. They can see the world through every set of eyes, and they are peacemakers. By the way, I would say that um, So a lot of people think Bill Clinton was um, a three. You know, Mr. Achiever, Mr. Adapt, whoever he's with. He was, in, in my opinion, I think, Suze, you agree with me, he, he's nine. That guy's a peacemaker. Um, you can't make peace in Bosnia or Northern Ireland uh, without being a nine. Uh, Ronald Reagan. We had a lot of presidents who were nines. And um, I think it's because of this incredible gift they have for empathy. Uh, empathy meaning being able to see the world through all kinds of eyes, seeing everybody's point of view and being able to harmonize them and, and bring together people who have seemingly irreconcilable positions. The nines just have a way of being able to bring them together. And it's fantastic. I'm not sure we said that the, um, in Enneagram world, the very best, the best part of you is also the worst part of you. And so you can't truncate yourself. You have to wrap your arm around all of that and bring yourself along. And I think the mm -hmm. best thing about nines is that they see two sides to everything. And I think that's the worst thing about nines. There's a paucity of self-knowledge, yeah. I think, in the, in the world. And um, because in the church, you know, people have focused so much on just knowing God that, and, and have actually labeled getting to know yourself as self-absorption. Uh, actually, I think religion is oftentimes used as a defense against having to get to know yourself, but that's a separate conversation. But really, until we know who we are and... Uh, get in touch with what our own needs are as human beings, we have a very fuzzy two-dimensional understanding of who God is. So you can get to know about your Enneagram number, understanding that, you know, you're a person made in the image of God. You got to hold on to it lightly and not get yourself all attached in a weird way to it. It's not magic. But what it will do is help you to see yourself at your best and be able to celebrate that and who you're like at your worst, and compassionately, compassionately address it and come into a knowledge of God that you couldn't have access to otherwise. I would just want to add to that that I've uh, had the gift for the last four or five years of doing some Enneagram work with veterans. And, um, Michael, you asked earlier about that stress and security piece and what has happened with a lot of young veterans who have come back from Iraq and Afghanistan is their families are saying, we just want you to be who you used to be. And veterans don't even know what they're talking about because of what they've been through. And the Enneagram using the stress piece really helps veterans to recognize who they used to be because if they've been deployed within recent time, they identify as their stress number instead of as their core number. And they're kind of messed up around that because motivation is what determines your Enneagram number, not behavior. And motivation doesn't change when you move into stress or when you move into security.
another place I've had the gift of teaching the Enneagram is in hospitals. And there's a, a real wide range of things that we could do around the understanding that when you walk into a room to deal with a patient, Michael, you as a five, and Mike, you as a nine, and Ian, you as a four, and I as a two, all need to be treated differently. And if people can get a sense of those differences and learn to kind of read whether or not people want to be touched or whether or not they want a lot of information or whether or not they need you to sit and talk with them, that, that's extraordinarily helpful. Yeah, so I've been in, in recovery from addiction for 27, 27 or 8 years this February. It's a, you know, a tremendously helpful tool for people who um, have had addictions to know when they're kind of spiraling down. I have one more question about on the journey of personal growth for somebody. How is it possible to transcend your number and, you know, me as a five saying in health moving towards an eight but that's not the only way I feel like when I'm really healthy it's not like I'm just assertive it's not like I never want to be a peacemaker and it's not like I never want to be a helper it's not, you know what I mean how does a healthy person transcend the number and, and move out of the energies of different numbers and all that I um, often start teaching by saying that I spend my life teaching people about who they're not this whole thing about personality is covering essence. It's covering your true personality or, or your true self, who you truly are, and your true nature. And we all had to put on personality in order to make our way in the world, in order to please the people who are our caregivers, in order to keep our jobs and have friends and all those things. But um, in the second half of life, you get kind of tired. You know, like I shared with you that I'm a helper and I would say that in personality I've kind of made my way in the world by giving and um, sharing and being generous and helping people. And you get tired. You get too tired to help all the people who present in front of you. And I don't think willpower has much to offer us in understanding and working with the reality of the Enneagram because I, I kind of think it's a myth that you can clench your fists and grit your teeth and decide not to act like a five anymore or not to act like a two anymore. But with some non-judgmental self-observation, which is not easy, but if you can learn to observe yourself non-judgmentally, you can allow personality patterns to fall away. And when they fall away, that purest, holiest part of you, the part of you that is most in the image of God, is there. It's underneath all of that. And it's a matter of allowing it. You don't have to create a new you. You have to allow the deepest and best part of you to show itself. Which in its core... Who you are is not a personality, but who you are is love, I think. 
as that true self emerges, then whatever that self happens to be mirroring or experiencing circumstantially can respond appropriately. If it's a moment that love demands peace, if it's a if it's a moment that that love demands helping, assertiveness, thoughtfulness, whatever whatever it is, artfulness um, can respond. It's all at the core there. Yeah, so in, this is that's a, that's a beautiful way of seeing the Enneagram. That actually makes it even more powerful to me of seeing, keep an eye on your ego. Here's what your ego is going to do. And you see it, and it kind of takes its power away from controlling every decision that you make and every interaction that you have and enslaving you, that you can kind of see it and, and see it for what it is. It gives you freedom. those moments when you disconnect with somebody when there's just a a momentary connect that has kind of a mystical feeling about it Mm -hmm. i'm pretty convinced that those are moments that are void of personality yeah that those are essence to essence moments i mean it's almost like the enneagram is a non-rigorous pragmatic personality modeling system that lets you identify the relative neurological expense of different social interactions and emotional expressions so you can best typify love and grace in a way that's most neuropalatable in your context (laughs) that was the most (laughs) science mike explanation you've ever heard yeah i was just about to say science mike has arrived (laughs) here he is the thing is he he the thing is he had to translate that into English from ones and zeros in his brain. <laughs> that's the path of least resistance for me. That's uh, that's my native personality. It really is. So we've started off season three talking about the Enneagram because it's our most requested episode ever. But even with all we've covered, I'm sure there's more you're thinking about, you're processing, and you'd like to know about the Enneagram. So if you'd like to talk with other people in the Liturgist community, just go to theliturgist.com slash podcast and click on this Enneagram episode. You can read a comment, read others' comments, and interact. You can interact with Michael and I using at the liturgists on Instagram or Twitter or facebook.com slash the liturgist. Now, of course, if you'd like to dig deeper into the Enneagram in particular, check out The Road Back to You, an Enneagram journey to self-discovery that's going to be out uh, October 16th, both as a book and a study guide that you could use to find maybe what your number might be. And you can also explore the Enneagram in a group context. Of course, they also have a podcast where they spend an episode talking about each number on the Enneagram, as well as a couple of introductory episodes. If you'd like to go deeper in podcast form that's available, it's also called The Road Back to You. We want to thank all our patrons on Patreon who financially make the show possible and tell us what future episodes we should be producing. We'd like to thank Corey Pig for doing production support and project management. Thanks to Greg Nordine for the editing help and Tyler Chester for those lovely piano pieces. And of course, all of you for listening. So good to see you. I'm Science Mike. And I'm Michael Gunger. Thanks for listening, everybody.